We're looking at Revelation chapter 14. Uh, hear the word of the Lord. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. Day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives a mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. <clears throat> then I looked and behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, and its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle, across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is a word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you just for this time. And, you know, <clears throat> uh, this word is uh, certainly challenging and certainly uh, maybe even uncomfortable, but uh, we, we pray, God, that you would give us um, your Holy Spirit to, uh, to see it, to receive it, um, to uh, hold it, um, uh, I guess, within us, to, to allow it to form and shape us. And um, we, we pray, God, that it would also be um, a good word, because your word is always good, and that you would uh, bring us uh, encouragement and challenge 
and strength as we hear it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So if you followed along with Revelation 14, um, it's kind of like, whoa, right? <laughs> it's an intense chapter. Uh, we've been going through this book, and I hope it's been fun to go through some of these visions. Uh, it's definitely a different way to receive the message of the New Testament than, let's say, a gospel narrative or an epistle. But, um, <clears throat> you know, don't let the figurative language or the symbolism lead you to believe that it's not calling us to respond to something, right? I know it's not as direct as, let's say, an, a letter from Paul uh, addressing fractures in the church between Jews and Gentiles and the Church of Rome and telling them very directly, welcome one another as Christ Jesus has welcomed you. Uh, Revelation, even though it's all these visions, uh, we're not passive observers, but Revelation is actually calling us to make a choice between the worship of God and the worship of idols. It's, uh, it's calling us to align ourselves with the things of God, even to the point of death and persecution, and to reject the allure of Satan and his temptations. And I think perhaps no chapter makes this choice clearer than this one. Now, I think in, in our world and in our culture, uh, it, it's really unfortunate that so many things have gotten so politicized. Uh, when things get politicized, basically it forces you to draw lines in the sand. And uh, I don't know, whatever lines you're drawing of differentiation, maybe it's like a political party or who you voted for, or even in this period of pandemic, it's been like, right, should masks be mandatory or not? Right? People are drawing all kinds of lines in the sands and you are either on right, my side or you are on the other side. And uh, that's part of right, why our culture and our country and uh, people at work and um, things like that are so uh, divided. <clears throat> And it's, uh, it's exhausting and draining for sure. The problem with that is not so much that there is a line drawn in the sand because actually even God draws a line. The problem with that is that we often draw lines in the wrong places. And at the end of the day, the lines aren't drawn between political parties or between racial uh, um, identities or even between a national identity. The line is drawn between the throne of God and the throne of Satan. It's between Babylon and the New Jerusalem. It's between the slain lamb and the beast that we look at, looked at uh, last week. That is a line that is being drawn in the book of Revelation. And through this vision, all peoples of the earth are being asked to choose a side. Who will you worship, right? Now, if you remember from last week, the passage ended with those who had a mark on their right hand or their forehead with the number of the beast, 666. And uh, the community that is a counter to that is, of course, uh, the community of the 144,000. We were introduced to this community, to this number in chapter 7, where John sees a number of the sealed, and uh, he breaks it down in terms of how it became 144,000. You have 12,000 uh, from the 12 tribes of Israel, which totals 144,000. And by now, you should know that the numbers in Revelation are figurative. So 144,000, right, 12 is a number of uh, completeness. 144,000 represents the uh, complete entire uh, community of the redeemed. And John sees on Mount Zion uh, stood a lamb, and with him, the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And you can see, again, where this is a contrast to uh, those who are marked with the beast with 666 on their foreheads uh, from last week's passage. Uh, those with the mark of the beast were called, were the ones who worshipped the beast and created idols made in the image of the beast. 
And by contrast, in this community of 144,000, they are singing a new song before the throne. In the Old Testament, a new song is actually an expression of praise for God's victory. And so the community of the redeemed, they are singing songs of victory because, again, I've said the message of Revelation is pretty simple because Jesus wins and they are on the side of Jesus. And therefore, they sing this new song of victory. Now, <clears throat> the community of the redeemed, they're actually also portrayed as soldiers. And not only is that hinted at in the singing of a new song, but uh, it's hinted at <laughs> in an unexpected way. Uh, in verse 4, uh, it says, These 144,000 have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. And, uh, you know, that, that verse has caused uh, people a lot of confusion in the past. What in the world does that have to do with soldiers and warfare? Well, in the Old Testament, the Israelites, they were required to be ceremonially pure before entering into battle, which means that they couldn't engage in any kind of sexual activity. And the reason for that is because the battle belonged to the Lord. So in wars involving Israel, God is the one who gave them the victory. And that's why, uh, for example, in Joshua, all the men get circumcised before they get ready to take on Jericho uh, because they need to be in right covenant with God. And uh, by the way, I just read a story from the Jesus Storybook Bible uh, this week to my kids. And, you know, uh, in the story of the fall of Jericho, they didn't include that part, right? Where all the men get circumcised. Uh, we don't really think about that part and the significance of that. But in the book of Joshua, it's actually a really significant part of the narrative because what it's enforcing is God is the one who achieves victory and the battle is not ultimately won with a stronger military. Otherwise, Israel would have had no chance. Uh, if you remember the story of David and Bathsheba, David summons Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And Uriah does something, I think, that would seem strange to us if you're not familiar with the practice of soldiers in battle. When he comes to Jerusalem to meet with David, he doesn't go home. Rather, he sleeps at the door of the king's house with all of David's servants. Uh, if you're a soldier who has been away in battle, wouldn't want you want to go home and see your wife? But Uriah doesn't do that because... He wants to be faithful to the law, and he knows he is not even supposed to sleep with his own wife during times of battle and warfare. So Uriah is supposed to be a contrast to David, who actually was supposed to be in battle as the king, but he, instead he remained in Jerusalem. And uh, the description of chastity of the 144,000 is not about their literal chastity, but it is actually an allusion to their identity as soldiers in battle. Now, throughout the book of Revelation, we have been talking about spiritual warfare because even though the language here is figurative, it's actually it's still communicating a real literal truth. And that is there is this unseen spiritual realm that is closely connected to uh, our embodied experience here on earth. And I think anyone who believes in the power of prayer already knows that because you have to assume the spiritual realm has an impact on our earthly experience in order to believe prayer has any kind of power at all. And uh, this is the age where the church is in battle, uh, as we've been seeing. Satan is on the attack. And if there is no sense that we are in a spiritual war, then we leave ourselves vulnerable to Satan's devices. Uh, let me give a little plug. I don't know if uh, you have Instagram or how many of you uh, actually uh, see any of these, but I've been trying to do some reflections on a book by uh, a pastor 
uh, an old pastor of like the 17th century who wrote a book called Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Uh, because I think in a secular age, uh, we, we usually settle for purely uh, material or earthly explanations for uh, things that happen, like personal things like despair or anxiety or depression or relational conflict, or even societal things like Christian nationalism or white supremacy or divisions that occur within the churches. And I'm not saying we don't use the tools of social sciences to analyze these things. Uh, as I mentioned last week, I find the sociologist Peter Berger to be very helpful, but not at the expense of the spiritual narrative. There is a spiritual realm and things happening in the spiritual realm, namely Satan trying to attack the church in the spiritual realm. And that has a, an effect uh, on us here on earth. Now, the next thing John sees uh, with the three angels, or he sees three angels and they're all saying something. They all proclaim something. Uh, in verse six, John saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And this first angel says, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Uh, that, that is a really interesting announcement. You know, the word gospel, as uh, Miss Natalia uh, was telling the children, the word gospel, right, it's good news. And uh, it's the good news of God's love. And when we hear the word gospel, we are used to thinking about it as that kind of message. It's a message of grace. It's a message of the crucified uh, Messiah who was raised to life and raises us to life with him. But here, the emphasis on the proclaimed gospel is on the fact that the hour of God's judgment has come, right? Isn't that weird? The second angel carries a similar message. Uh, the second angel talks about how Babylon has fallen. Babylon will be a bigger theme later on, but Babylon represents a kingdom that was against the people of God. And the Babylonians were the ones who sacked the temple of Jerusalem and exiled the people of God. So in figurative language, the second angel is proclaiming that the enemy of God and uh, the people who associate themselves with the enemy of God will ultimately be defeated. And then this third angel continues the escalation of that message of judgment and says, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now, it's declaring that anyone who identifies with the throne of Satan uh, or fallen Babylon will drink the cup of God's wrath, presumably on the final day of God's judgment. And this is also probably where a lot of the popular conceptions of hell are drawn from and why people think of torment with fire and sulfur when they think of hell. I would say the hardest uh, doctrine to talk about uh, in the Christian faith is the doctrine of hell. There is something about it. Uh, it's weird. I, it, it, does too, it either fascinates people to the point where it kind of becomes the focal point of uh, Christianity, or it really turns people uh, off in um, you know, very intense ways. And you know, people who write books and give talks trying to defend the Christian faith, uh, they, they universally all seem to say, you know, the hardest part about talking about, the hardest topic to talk about when talking about Christianity is actually the topic of hell. 
Uh, one of those people um, is a woman named Rebecca McLaughlin, and she wrote a book called Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. And uh, her final chapter uh, is on how could a loving God send people to hell? And not only does she say it's the hardest question in her book, but she actually says it pales in comparison to every other question. She, uh, she says it's the most difficult thing that Christians are called to believe in, even more difficult than believing in something like supernatural miracles or why God has the right to tell us, to, uh, to tell us what to do with our bodies. Uh, and one of the reasons for this is it's not just the intellectual component, but there, there is a deep uh, personal and emotional component to a question like that. Uh, it's a question that has to do with the end of the story and there's a finality to it. And uh, I think because of that, it, it does make it hard to, to receive. You know, one of my first memories of talking to uh, an atheist about Christianity was when I was a college student at Rutgers. And uh, I think I shared this story before, but uh, what, what he asked me was about hell when I was trying to share the gospel. And he asked me, you know, my uncle who died, uh, are you saying that he's in hell because he didn't believe in Jesus? And I, I froze because I wasn't really sure how to respond. Uh, and I kind of want to be like, man, give me a break. I've only been like a Christian for like two years. <laughs> but I, I stumbled my way into, into saying, uh, well, I think that's what the Bible teaches. And he got really angry at me, like cursed me out. He, he walked away, right? After that, I was like, oh my gosh, I hope nobody ever asks me about hell ever again. <laughs> now, uh, <clears throat> I have to talk about it because, you know, it's in the Bible, and not only is it in the Bible, but it's, it's uh, also in this passage. And believe it or not, it's actually one of the subjects Jesus taught the most about. And it certainly plays a role at the end of history uh, in the book of Revelation. So uh, we should talk about it and we shouldn't shy away from it uh, just because it's uncomfortable or difficult. Uh, and we should talk about it because it's an important part of the story. Now, the imagery here, it's, it's like, re oh, it's really startling, right? Um, if you really pay attention to it, it's really startling imagery. Uh, you have first, the angel talks about fire and sulfur, um, which will be visuals that actually will come up in later chapters in the book of Revelation. And then at the end of chapter 14, uh, after Jesus returns, you have the second harvest and the angel swings his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And here's where it gets like really violent. And the wine press was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. That's, that's a disturbing, that's a violent picture that we get um, in this vision. Now, let me say, by the way, this is actually where John Steinbeck got his uh, title for his novel, The Grapes of Wrath. Now, not directly from this passage, but there's actually a line in the Battle Hymn of the Republic that says he is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. And uh, that line in the hymn is a reference to this passage in Revelation 14. And John Steinbeck's wife suggested that title for his novel, and he went with it. And, you know, it kind of shows you there is something about uh, the violence of the imagery here that, that does grab your attention, right? Now, in one of the earlier sermons in this series, uh, I, I drew from a book that connected stories from television and film to uh, certain thematic elements of the Bible. And um, I'm going to draw from one of his chapters again in this message. He, he actually has a chapter about violence. And one of the things that he does is he analyzes the films of Quentin Tarantino. 
my wife hates, or I should say hates, she doesn't like, she doesn't care for Quentin Tarantino films because they're so violent. And uh, some of you may not care for any of his films either because they're so violent. But the author connects the use of violence to the theme of redemption. Now, if you've seen Tarantino movies, uh, a lot of the themes that he deals with in his stories are themes of vengeance. So for example, in one movie, uh, he reimagines the end of World War II where um, you know Hitler doesn't end up like uh, killing himself, but Hitler is actually assassinated in the movie theater of, of a woman whose family was actually killed by the Nazis. And there's this kind of like feel good, yes, he got what he deserved, right? Quentin Tarantino likes those kinds of themes. Uh, you have a similar theme in like Kill Bill or Django Unchained, all these movies have a violent ending for the bad guy. And Quentin Tarantino is drawn to those themes because it's the ending that he longs for, uh, but the one that the world so often denies. And there is something within him that sees this connection between uh, this kind of violence and um, right, right justice, I guess I would say. But there is a difference actually between Tarantino's films and the story of the Bible. And to conclude by saying the violence of the final judgment at the end of history is a reflection of the justice and the righteous character of God, that may be true, but it's also incomplete. We started by looking at the 144,000 community of the redeemed. And you know, in verse four, they're identified as the redeemed and the first fruits for God and the lamb. And that word first fruits means that there is a greater harvest that is to come later. When Jesus is resurrected, he is also called the first fruits because Jesus is the first of a greater harvest of resurrected people that will come. And at the end of chapter four, you have two harvests, a vision of two harvests. The first harvest is a grain harvest, uh, which is hard to tell based on the English translation. But when it talks about the earth being fully ripe, it's a different Greek word than when it talks about the grapes being ripe. The first Greek word actually means dry. So the earth becomes fully dry. Grain becomes dry when it's ready to be harvested. And the second harvest is the grape harvest that enters the wine press and then they are smashed. Now, the meaning of the grape harvest is, is pretty obvious, right? It's the wine press of God's wrath and judgment upon uh, the wicked. But what does the grain harvest symbolize? Uh, some people think it's uh, another scene of judgment of the wicked, and others think it symbolizes the gathering of the church for salvation. Uh, so there is some debate about the interpretation. Uh, I favor the latter interpretation. I think the first harvest is the completion of the first fruits of the 144,000 when Jesus returns and gathers the church for salvation. And while the wicked are harvested for... Um, for okay, while the wicked are harvested for judgment now that's the the end of the story uh, but we also have to realize we live in an age where we haven't reached the end of the story right this age represents an age where god is withholding his judgment so that people would have an opportunity to repent and turn away from false idols and turn to worship the true and the living God. Uh, this is why I say it's different from a Tarantino film. In Tarantino's films, there's no opportunity for redemption. In God's story, we are living in the opportunity for redemption. This is the age where the church can proclaim the gospel message of salvation so that people can receive the very salvation that God wants to give. Uh, there's a Croatian theologian named Miroslav Volf and he wrote this great book on the theme of reconciliation. Uh, it's one of the quotes 
that I put up uh, before service started. Uh, and he says this, he says, should not a loving God be patient and keep luring the perpetrator into goodness? And this is exactly what God does. God suffers the evildoers through history as God has suffered them on the cross. But how patient should God be? The day of reckoning must come, but not because God is e too eager to pull the trigger, but because every day of patience in a world of violence means more violence, and every postponement of vindication means letting insult accompany injury. Uh, when people think of, about God and think about the concept of hell, um, I get the sense people have this impression that you know God is all too eager to condemn people to hell. But what Wolf is actually showing us is that that isn't the case at all. If anything, God is being very patient because what he is doing in this age is he is withholding that final judgment so that people would have an opportunity to receive what he has to offer. Um, and um, I, I, did, I had this quote in the beginning, so it'll sound familiar, but he also says, God will judge, not because God gives people what they deserve, but because some people refuse to receive what no one deserves. If evildoers experience God's terror, it will not be because they have done evil, but because they have resisted to the end the powerful lure of the open arms of the crucified Messiah. And I, I think that beautifully encapsulates God's heart. Um, you know, God doesn't desire uh, to send people um, you know, into this horrible, horrific, horrific place. That's why he sent Jesus to redeem people from that place. You know, this is a strange world that we are living in because on the one hand, it does seem like what people think will lead to greater tolerance is uh, maybe erasing boundaries and erasing lines. And when that happens, authenticity becomes the, the greatest value. And as long as you're being authentic to your true self, then uh, everyone else should uh, have to embrace that. But then on the other hand, everything has gotten so politicized that lines are being drawn all the time. And then those lines are being redrawn. And the place where those lines are drawn are no longer relevant because the line has moved and it seems to be moving all the time. And I, I don't have the brain power to draw a connection between those two things, but it feels like there, there's a relation between those two things. Now, uh, the vision of, in Revelation, I think it pushes back against both of those things. You know, there are lines, of course, and God is the one who draws a line in the sand. You are either devoted to God's throne or to Satan's throne. That is the line. And yet, the purpose of God drawing that line is not to exclude anyone, right? Oftentimes, the reason why uh, we might draw lines is because we want to exclude people on the other side. But that is not God's intention or his purpose. It is simply to differentiate the throne of God from the throne of Satan, to differentiate good from evil, the new Jerusalem from Babylon. And so what God, what God is doing on his side of the line is not, let me exclude those who are on the other side of the line. What God is doing is he is imploring peoples of every nation, tribe, and language to repent, to receive the gospel, and to join him on the side of eternal life. It is a deep embrace that God longs for. That is why the ministry of the church matters, right? Uh, the church is the means by which that message of the gospel is proclaimed. That is how God is imploring all peoples to receive what he has to offer in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. That's why the witness of the church matters. And as we've seen, that's, that's a great theme in the book of Revelation. That's why the church has to endure in her faithful witness, 
even in the face of persecution, even in the face of imprisonment, even in the face of poverty or social ostracism or even death. That is how important the witness of the church is. And this has been, uh, this past year has been hard for everyone, uh, including churches, right? Uh, including our church. And uh, sometimes I think there is this uh, very real temptation uh, for all of us, for myself included, to, to kind of give up and lose hope uh, that churches can be what uh, it's supposed to be, that what it's meant to be. Um, you know, there's been a lot of like scandal and fallen leaders and, um, you know, and even uh, myself and the leaders of this church, maybe there's a sense like, ah, we're just not, we're not good enough. Um, or maybe, you know, we just don't seem uh, motivated enough. Or maybe there's, you know, scandal maybe there's division maybe there's apathy maybe there's indifference and it's very easy to say well um the church has no purpose right there's there's no hope but what would god say to a church who has been um struggling who has been in a season of pandemic for almost a year um i don't think we have to use our imaginations too much because i think it would be a similar message to what we see in verse 12 that call in verse 12 which is a call for the endurance of the saints. So imagine God would say, church, endure, right? Press on, endure. It's hard. You're going through hard things, uh, but endure. Stay faithful. Uh, I know it's not easy. I know things don't look promising on the surface, but endure. Endure in your faithful witness. Because as we see in this vision, the stakes are very, very high right? The stakes are very, very high. Um, I don't know, if you're a Christian believer and you read a, a passage like this, uh, in one sense, you shouldn't be afraid of the visionary here um, because, uh, because of Christ, uh, you're redeemed from it. Uh, but on the other hand, you should be very afraid, <laughs> uh, maybe not for yourself, but um, for others. And it, it, I think it should disturb us um, to a degree that we, if we have real uh, abundant love in our hearts, say, oof, we need to be faithful as a church in this witness. Uh, no matter how hard things get, we have to endure because the stakes truly are high. So let me end there and uh, let me pray for us. God, we, um, we don't often get to read and reflect on passages like this. And um, uh, sometimes passages like this really do uh, maybe shock us in a good way and kind of wake us up from uh, and wake us up to the kind of perspective that we ought to have. And, you know, when we do look at things from a spiritual perspective, from an eternal perspective, um, you know, the stakes are really high. And... Um, You know, I remember uh, here reading from a, a pastor you know, a couple centuries ago uh, saying that uh, anytime one preaches on a topic such as this, um, it should always be accompanied by tears. And so I, I do pray that there is a, um, a sense of that uh, within all of us as we uh, just think about this. But uh, I also pray, God, that you would... Um, um, you would draw us near to, to Jesus with a, a great sense of gratitude in 
knowing uh, what we've been redeemed from, uh, in knowing what Jesus himself endured and suffered upon the cross, and that that would fill our hearts with um, the kind of love and gratitude uh, we need to pour ourselves out uh, for others. Um, you know, we need strength. And I think the reality of the lives that we live, especially in a season of pandemic where everything seems so much more difficult, is, uh, you know, we, sometimes we just want to kind of give up and, um, you know, we lose all kinds of motivation. Uh, but we need your strength, God, to help us to endure. Uh, we need you to call us to endurance and uh, encourage us with the very same things you encourage these churches with in Asia Minor. Encourage us with your promises. Encourage us with the victory of Christ. Uh, help us to really internalize uh, that victory and to know um, that uh, because of the resurrection, um, you know, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, our, our labors are not in vain and they're never in vain. Uh, our prayers are never in vain. When we gather and worship, it's never in vain. When we uh, reach out to somebody and uh, um, love them and have a conversation and, and talk about uh, our faith with them, it is never in vain. And so give us a sense of uh, who you are. Give us a sense of your greater story and help us to find ourselves within it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.